What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Pin Down. I'm your host, Alex, with your other host, Tyler, from Hoop Venue. Uh, we got a lot to talk about this week, and we're going to start off with what DeMar DeRozan has been doing for the Chicago Bulls in the absence of some of their best players uh, with a lot of injuries around the roster. Zach Levine's been out. Lonzo Ball's been out. Alex Caruso has been in and out of the lineup. Uh, and DeMar DeRozan, despite all of this, has still been able to drag the Chicago Bulls to some really impressive wins, putting up some really impressive and historic numbers. Tyler, what do you think about uh, what DeMar DeRozan is well, doing? Well, I think anytime a Wilt Chamberlain record is broken, uh, that's something that's something to look at. Because, right, because usually when a player is doing something historic, it's first to do it since Wilt Chamberlain. It's not this player just broke Will Chamberlain's record. And after the first time I saw this stat, I was like, it, it was a, a couple games before he actually broke the record. It was, he broke the Bulls record of the 35 plus 50 field goal percentage plus games. And I was just like, what? Michael, jo- he just beat a Michael Jordan record? Like, oh, okay. And then a couple games later, I Right, right, right. Especially a scoring Michael Jordan record. A scoring Michael Jordan record. And then I see someone tag me on Twitter. It was like the stat where he broke Wilt's record and it said thoughts. And I, I, I replied. I said, is this real? Like, I, I, I didn't know if it was real or not. I I thought I got sacked. I, I sure did. But I was just kind of like, he broke Wilt Chamberlain's record, which... Actually, kind of surprised me in the first place. Will Chamberlain only doing that in six games in a row feels fake. But, um, you know, I was genuinely surprised. But, like, if anybody was going to do it this season, it's going to be the guy who maybe isn't the most efficient scorer uh, from a true shooting standpoint, but a guy who gets a large percentage of his volume scoring done in the two-point range. So... A guy like DeRozan who can manufacture a mid-range shot whenever he wants and get to the rim at a high level, uh, as well as get to the free throw line at a high level, things like that. He's been able to ramp up the scoring volume to a very high level this year. He's now over 28 points per game, and he's doing it in every way. Like I, I, I made a tweet today where he's 89th percentile as a pick-and-roll scorer, 91st percentile as an isolation scorer, and 93rd percentile as a post-up scorer. That... Those are like the three big uh, value-add type of scoring where it's like you can manufacture your own bucket and it's not reliant on anyone on your team. Those numbers are only rivaled by like, uh, since they've started being tracked, like Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City and LeBron James in Miami. Like that that level of scoring versatility on these different play types is just absurd. And um, he's doing it while being 68th in the league in touches per game. He's getting less touches than Monte Morris right now. And he's doing this type, these type of, uh, putting up these type of numbers. And for me, it's just, we know what DeRozan's been capable of. Uh, in Toronto, he showed that he's one of the best slashers and mid-range scorers in the game, uh, putting it together like that. Then in San Antonio, he started to show a lot uh, more playmaking and very low error creation for his team. And now he's just putting it all together while playing the best defense of his career. And while I won't jump on the, He's an MVP candidate, top five player in the world. Um, he's he's a phenomenal basketball player, and he 100% deserves uh, all of the credit right now. 
No doubt. And I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily on the boat that he deserves to be like, oh, he's like top five in the MVP conversation or anything like that. I'm personally not ready to say that. I think most level headed NBA fans would agree with this and even Chicago Bulls fans, because I've talked to a couple. uh, I had a couple interact with a tweet and I was just like, guys, statistically, DeMar DeRozan may not be an MVP candidate right now. He may not be like, you know, top five, top three in the race, but what he's doing is not only incredibly fun to watch, but it's also incredibly valuable. You know, like you said, he's he's adding a ton of value to his team on the scoring end. And while, you know, he's not playmaking like Jokic, he's not doing the things that Joel Embiid is doing. He's not the two-way player that Giannis is while also leading the league in scoring. You know, he still deserves to be mentioned in that MVP discussion, I'm not saying he's, you know, fourth, fifth, or top three or anything like that, but, you know, he deserves to be in the mix. Now, whether or not there's any credence to him actually winning the award, you know, that's up for debate. People can argue about that all day long. I'm not going to get into it, but what he's doing is still incredibly valuable, especially when you look at some of his numbers in the clutch right now, which is where a lot of value is added because in games decided by five or less points in the clutch this season, uh, he is fourth highest in points per game in the clutch. uh, And he's shooting with a 67.4% true shot percentage in the clutch, which is the highest efficiency among any of the top 10 scorers in the clutch this season. So while he's maybe not scoring the most points in the clutch, and I forget who exactly that was, uh, he is doing it on the best efficiency out of the best scorers in the clutch. And there's a lot of value to be said for that. And while uh, it does directly result in wins, and I know people are going to argue over if he is an actual MVP candidate, That's pretty valuable stuff right there. I mean, scoring in the clutch is probably one of the most direct ways that you can help your team win games. And he's been arguably the best at it this year when you take the scoring output and efficiency into perspective. So, you know, debate if you want about if he's the MVP. You know, personally, I don't think he's the MVP. I don't think he'll win MVP. I don't have him top three in the MVP race. But, you know, he's in the mix of that pool of guys that are in that discussion. It would take a lot for him to propel himself to the point that he's in that top three or even, you know, the top five. But the discussion's pretty broad, and there's no doubt that he belongs in it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm glad that people are starting to appreciate, uh, like, higher leverage scoring more because that's where the the mid-range shot is most valuable. That's where we see guys like Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, DeMar DeRozan um, show their impact because it, it becomes a game of possessions, and it's not really about efficiency anymore as opposed to accuracy. When you put it this way, it's like, okay, over the entirety of a game, four quarters, we'll say the first 46 minutes or whatever, uh, it's about efficiency. It's about uh, getting as big of a lead on the opponent as you can, whether that's through three-pointers, getting to the rim, things like that uh, that are more efficient basketball. But when it gets to those very, very close high-leverage moments, it's usually a one-point game or, or a two-point game. And it's not about the efficiency. It's a game of possessions, and it's about the accuracy you have to score. So in those moments, 
DeMar DeRozan's 54% mid-range shot becomes more valuable than a 39% three-pointer. If you put, if you combine long twos and mid-range, it's, it's still over 50. I think it's like 50 point something, but yeah, no, just like the 10 to 16 feet, uh, 10 to 16 range, I'm pretty sure it's like 54 or 55, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like, like I said, it becomes about accuracy. So sure. A 39% three point shot might be generating more points per possession, but when you're only down by one, what matters is actually putting the ball in the hoop and the accuracy as opposed to the efficiency. And DeMar DeRozan is one of the game's most accurate scorers easily. And although it is a very small sample, just 81 minutes, in high high and very high leverage moments, uh, the Bulls with DeMar DeRozan on the floor have a 125 offensive rating, which is just, yeah, and a plus 12 net. So they clearly are closing games and in large part due to DeRozan, because even when he's getting blitzed, even when he's getting trapped 30 feet out, he's still able to manufacture his own shot whenever he wants uh, in the mid-range. And it's worth noting, he's relocating extremely well too. Every time he does get blitzed, um, he's not just passing and standing, he's passing and cutting to the elbow to relocate and still get his own shot. And I just think DeMar, what DeMar DeRozan's doing all around as a an on-ball player, off-ball player, uh, just generating offense at a very high level right now. Wow, like I said, clearly playing the best defense of his career to me. Um, this this is just clearly like another level of DeRozan that we haven't seen in his entire career. And I'm excited to see just how much, just how good he's going to finish out the season because that streak is still going. He's he's not done. Right. I think I think DeMar DeRozan is such an interesting case study in in the whole analytical movement. Um, like you said, in those high leverage moments, it's it's less about which shot generates the most points per possession. It's it's about who's going to put the ball in the hoop. And there's arguably not been a better player in the NBA at putting the ball in the hoop in clutch time situations than DeMar DeRozan. So, you know, he's an interesting case study because we're we're always thinking about you know we need to get a three point shot or we need to get to the rim or we need to get to the foul line but uh, the the difference with this whole analytical movement towards uh, three point shots and getting to the rim and getting to the line you know it's not it's not that the mid range shot is a bad shot it's that a mid range shot is a bad shot for guys that can't make it. Exactly. When you have guys like DeMar DeRozan, when you have guys like Kevin Durant who can take and make those three-point shots, that no longer becomes a bad shot because they're capable of making it. When you have, you know, when you have guys like I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example here. When you've got Anthony like your <laughs> yeah, when you've got like your sixth or seventh man or a guy who dominates inside the inside the paint or a guy who lives be, be, behind the arc, uh behind the arc, when you've got those guys who are stepping inside the line and putting up mid-range shots and that's not their game, yeah, it's a bad shot. But when you've got a guy like DeMar DeRozan, when you've got a guy like Kevin Durant, when you've got a guy like Chris Paul taking these mid-range shots, that's not a bad shot. That's a shot that you want them taking. And I'm glad that, you know, people are starting to realize, you know, the mid-range game is not dead. It's just At that all. it's just that there are only a, a handful, select number of guys who are capable of doing it in such a way and on such efficiency that it actually adds value to their team. 
And I hate when a lot of the anti-analytical guys are like, they'll see DeRozan or Kevin Durant or Chris Paul playing amazing and they'll say, oh, but analytics say not to take mid-ranges. Analytics want those guys to take mid-range shots because they're so good at it. A 54% mid-range shot has an offensive rating of 108. Why would you not want that in a half-court possession? Because the the league average half-court possession is probably like a 100. So that's a plus eight offense uh, from a mid-range shot. And you have guys like DeRozan, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant who can get that shot whenever they want. It's not like you're going to take that away from them. So when you're you're in a half-court offense, especially in the clutch, having a guy who can just get in between the defense and get to their spots like that is huge. And I think it's worth noting that I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but from what I've seen and, and the data I have looked at recently, the Nets with Kevin Durant, the Bulls with DeRozan, and the Suns with Chris Paul are three of the very best clutch teams in the league this season. That's not a, That's not a fluke. It just isn't. Those are the guys that are very accurate from two, are very accurate in getting to their spots, and can knock down shots. They're shot makers. They're tough shot makers. And they are showing that the mid-range shot will never die because it will always hold inherent value, especially when it's when the game slows down and you need half-court offense to be generated. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned we've talked a lot about his scoring ability and his, his ability to score in the mid-range. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned earlier his playmaking ability because I forget exactly what game this was, uh, but it was within the last like five or six games or so when he's been on this hot streak. But they were in the process of closing out the game and – he got into the mid-range and he was trying to hunt down the elbow uh, to get that shot off that he loved so much. And Vucevic was at the top of the key above the break. Um, and DeMar got double teamed just immediately once he got to that spot. Because the other team, they they just know immediately. Once DeMar DeRozan gets to that spot on the floor, he's going to take that shot. Because more often than not, it's going to go in. And DeMar knew he got to that spot. They trapped him, and he just passed it, dumped it back to uh, Vucevic, and Vucevic pulled up, drained the three-pointer. And uh, it's just that that scoring gravity isn't just for three-point shooters. It isn't just for guys who get to the rim. That scoring gravity exists for guys who score from all areas of the floor, and we're starting to see that with DeMar DeRozan, especially in high-leverage situations. They're like, we got to get the ball out of this guy's hands because he's so good at making it in these situations. And so when they're trapping DeMar DeRozan, you know the definition of spacing. There's going to be tons of other guys or gravity. There's going to be tons of other guys left open. And we saw that happen. And I I wish I knew exactly which game it was, but they're all kind of blending together because he's just been so stinking good. And he just doesn't turn the ball over either. No, he's a very, very smart and conservative player. Right, like he's not going to make the most high leverage reads. He's not going to get into the heart of the defense and probe around and, and make a read like John Morant or Trey Young. But he's also not going to force anything. He he lets the game come to him. He he plays with great pace and patience. And it's like, it just feels like whenever he, he's in attack mode in a clutch time situation, like if you turn on a Bulls game and it's like a two-point game, and the ball is in DeRozan's hands, it almost fe- it's like a sense of comfort. Like, oh, he's going to make the best decision possible. And that's been the story of the season. It's just all around good decision-making, great shot-making, 
and he's just been on a complete clinic. And and uh, I'm here for it because Chicago is back. Chicago Bulls basketball is back. And exactly. And and all due credit to Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, Zach Levine, Vooch, all but all of these guys have been out of the lineup. And one guy that's kept them where they are, DeMar DeRozan. So moving on from uh, DeMar DeRozan and the Chicago Bulls, uh, who have been absolutely fantastic, there was a comment made by former NBA player uh, Tracy McGrady uh, about Giannis Antetokounmpo. And uh, this quote, this is an abridged version of the quote, uh, if you, and he, he was talking about his era. He said, uh, if you can't shoot, it's going to be hard. And Giannis's game is predicated on coming downhill. It would have been tough for him to be who he is today back then. Now, what do you think about this quote? Do you think he's on to something there about Giannis not being able to thrive in Tracy McGrady's era? Do you think Giannis would still be as good as he is in that time? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, there's no way to really get into the semantics of it all. Um, I don't think I don't think Tracy McGrady saying that Giannis wouldn't be a great player in that era, just that it would be be a little bit harder for him. And I do tend to agree to a certain extent. Think about all of the dominant paint scorers from that time. Tracy McGrady's era, we'll say it was probably like 01 to 05. Like that was like where he kind of hit the peak of his abilities. Right. And if you look at any dominant paint scorer from that time, their game was predicated on getting the ball down low. And whether that's off the ball, in the post, whatever it was, they were getting the ball down low and manufacturing their own bucket. You look at Shaquille O'Neal, um, obviously a phenomenal off-ball player, but a large chunk of his scoring did come uh, in the low post with his jump hooks, his drop steps, his spin moves, all of that. Tim Duncan, some of the same, low block post scoring. Um, and we didn't really see too many slashing guards score at the level like we do today. Like Obviously, you had Baron Davis, you had Steve Francis, you had Stephon Marbury, but they weren't... Uh, John Morant, Derrick Rose level scorers. And it's worth noting that, yeah, in the pace and space era, Giannis's game is completely elevated because that's the style of play he plays. He's going to get downhill. He's going to uh, force the defense to collapse and create for shooters. And if they don't collapse, obviously score on anyone. Do I think Giannis would be able to adapt? Yes. But Giannis's game isn't predicated on getting the ball down low and scoring uh, that's just not the style of basketball he plays. And it's worth noting that when the game does slow down quite a bit, he does settle, tend to settle a lot more. We, it did get a lot better in the, in the, in the tail end of the last year's playoffs, uh, against Atlanta and Phoenix. He was, he wasn't forcing anything. Right. But still the game is so much slower. There's so many less possessions. There's so many less, uh, transition opportunities. And when you pair that with the, with the spacing issues and all of that, I do think Giannis's offense would see uh, somewhat of a decline. I'm not going to say he wouldn't be, still be a superstar MVP level player, but I think there would be a noticeable offensive decline. But on the other end, I mean, ground becomes so much easier to cover for him. He doesn't, he's not getting pulled out that far. I, he, like his, his help defense would be absurd. Like, he'd probably be adding close to like, yeah, like you said, he'd be around that Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, Ben Wallace tier of defenders just because he's got top five court coverage and ranginess I've ever seen. 
in an era that's very spaced out. So like imagine what he would do when players are pulled in to the 20 foot mark in the mid range spotting up and he's yeah, it would just be absurd. But like, I do think there's some validity to Tracy McGrady's statements. And I think people are taking his words out of context and saying that he's like one of those guys like, Oh, he would never be able to hang in my era. Um, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying it would, it would be harder for him. And I agree. I do think it would be harder because that's just the way basketball was played back then as opposed to right now. It's not like he's going to get on the block and, and be a dominant isolation scorer. That just really isn't his game. Yeah. So I'm going to be honest. You initially, when I saw this, this quote, I'm, I'm a gigantic Giannis Antetokounmpo fan and I'll be the first to say that. So maybe I'm, I'm probably a little biased. So when I saw this tweet, I was like, Oh, I'm, I got to defend Giannis Antetokounmpo because how dare they say that he wouldn't survive in this era. And, you know, obviously we think about like today's era and everything, and it's so dominated by three point shooting. And I think that's the first thing everyone's mind goes to when they think about like the deficiencies in Giannis's game is just the fact that he isn't a good three point shooter. And so Tracy McGrady saying something like, Oh, he would have struggled in my era. You know, their mind goes to thinking, well, Giannis doesn't shoot threes very well and they didn't really shoot a ton of threes back then so how would he have struggled and that's kind of immediately where my mind went to and i had a i had a couple different conversations with other people where you know we were talking about how even even without uh the three-point shooting of that era and in the level that that was at there are still aspects of the game where Giannis would have struggled because his game is predicated on you know it is predicated on getting downhill and um a lot of transition opportunities, things like that. And so you definitely, I don't want to say changed my mind because I do still disagree with Tracy McGrady to some extent, but you did enlighten me towards some of the drawbacks of having Giannis in that era that he would likely encounter some of the the challenges. But I will say, um, you know, I think uh, more so two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, Giannis's game was very predicated on getting out and running and transition, getting downhill and getting to the basket. I will say Giannis has become a much, much, much better half court uh, initiator. Uh, not that he, you know, I don't want to sit here and act like he's elite or anything like that, or that he's, you know, he's one of the best initiators of half court offense in the NBA right now, because I, I don't think that's true. I don't know if the numbers would say that's even remotely true. I just I I would assume that he is not one of the top end half court players in the NBA right now. But right. I will say he has gotten significantly better at playing slow and more methodical. I think his ball handling has reached a level where he doesn't need to just post guys up he doesn't need to just barrel towards the basket I think he is getting some more finesse to his game I think he is getting better at you know using his quick first step instead of just like trying to go through guys using his quick first step to get around guys and and find lanes to the basket I think that's something he is much improved at and uh also his passing um is very I don't want to say reliant, but it is very much based on kicking out to three-point shooters. Um, He's not necessarily like a dump-off kind of guy to cutters or anything like that. He can do that, but it's not something that we see a ton from him. So um, while I do think he would encounter a lot of struggles, like you said, and I definitely agree with a lot of the points you made, and 
you know, I'm starting to see a little bit more credence to what Tracy McGrady said. Um, but given Tracy McGrady's track record on, on, uh, during his stint on TV, uh, <laughs> you know, it's sometimes hard to take him as a credible source because he said a lot of boneheaded things in the past. Yeah. And I, another, uh, point I wanted to touch on with Giannis's half court offense is, uh, how much better he's gotten off the ball. Like, as a screen and roll guy, mostly, um, he's gotten so good at just screening and rolling. And I mean, he's just so, so lethal moving towards the basket, uh, whether he has the ball, whether he doesn't have the ball, like you just can't let him, uh, go unattended when he's running to the basket because he's arguably the best finisher the game's ever seen. He's, he can get above the rim easily, uh, to catch a lob. He can, catch the ball in the short roll and now he's just so much of a better decision maker and passer like I remember I went to the Bucks and Warriors game uh where the Bucks blew out the Warriors I was there and there was one pass where he caught the ball in the short roll it was in the first quarter and he looked to the left corner he's on the left wing keep this in mind he's on the left wing he gets the ball on the short roll from I think it was Chris Middleton he looks to the left corner brings his left arm out with the ball while looking at the left corner, hooks it over his head to the opposite corner on the money to the right corner on the money. And I was sitting right behind the right corner. It looked like the ball was going at my face like 9,000 miles an hour. Uh, shooter catches it, knocks it down. I look back at the replay later when I get back to the hotel and I'm like, it was even crazier than I thought. Like that was a Jokic-esque pass in the short roll. And I'm seeing a lot of those this year, those passes where like he's on the other side of the court and he'll whip the ball to the opposite three-point line and I'm like it's absurd. Wait, that's a I'm like that's a Jokic pass. Like how did he just do that? And I and- think we're 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 kind of seeing like the culmination of to me this is this is peak Giannis. What we're seeing this year is the culmination of everything that Giannis has been working on his entire career. His playmaking, his scoring at the rim, even his three-point shooting has been a little bit better. It's still not even close to where it needs to be to actually be an effective shot. But that coupled with his passing, his his all-time great help defense, he's improved as a perimeter defender Uh it's really just like to me this is this is peak Giannis that we're witnessing and it's it's interesting because from a number standpoint if you just looked at raw numbers whether that's impact metrics the box score whatever it is you look at just regular season numbers you would think on paper that 2020 was Giannis's peak but when just when just watching the difference between the players you're taking 2020 Giannis and you're adding this this off-ball game. You're adding this passing. You're adding this in-between, all these in-between counters. He's just culminating everything. Like you said, it's like the defense from 2020, the, the passing and decision-making at a peak level, the counters, his free throw percentage is back up to 72. Um, he's just playing absurd basketball right now. And um, the like... I'm just really excited to see what happens in the playoffs because a lot of the drawbacks with Giannis over the years have been how can he react to a defense specifically schemed for him. The 2019 Raptors, back-to-back years against the Heat, he struggled scoring. But I've gotten to a point where when I watch him, it's like I don't, I can't think of a defense that can really take away his his game at all. Like I, I can't see him really struggling. Maybe a downtick in some of his scoring proficiency, but like 
that's that'll probably be offset by creating a boatload of three-pointers for teammates. And it's like the Bucks have done such a good job at just surrounding him with constant shooting and moving. And it's like no one can stop Giannis from going to the rim. You can put a wall there. But once the wall's there, there's going to be open shooters. And Giannis has gotten so good good and quick with his decision-making at this point that it's like uh, whoever you leave open, Giannis is going to choose the best option. Yeah, I. It's, it's, it's just – it's one of those things where it's frustrating because I know you understand it and I obviously understand it. And I think there's a good amount of NBA fans who understand it, but I still think there's a group of them who don't. Giannis, you know, maybe earlier on in his career, there was an argument that he wasn't maybe the most skilled big man in the world. And he relied a lot on size and athleticism to get his buckets. And, you know, there's there was probably some credence to that earlier on. But this year and even last year, I'll say, and probably for the past three years, there is no way unless you aren't watching games that you can say that Giannis Antetokounmpo is not a skilled basketball player. Oh, yeah, it's absurd. That's just, <laughs> it's, it's objectively not true because we talk about Jokic's passing and we're like, that's something that makes him one of the most skilled big men ever. Argue, he arguably is the most skilled big man ever. And Giannis's passing, people, unless you're not watching, there's no way you can look at that passing ability and be like, oh, he's not skilled. There's no way you can look at his post footwork and think, oh, he's not skilled. There's no way that you can look at his ball handling ability and think, oh, he's not skilled. It's just impossible. He is an incredibly skilled player now, and he has been. His defensive ability, his passing, his scoring in the post, even even his some of his mid-range game has been getting better lately. particularly this season i mean that post fade that he has that i've seen him go to more and more lately that's been money and stuff like that i mean it's just it further disproves the claim that Giannis is somehow not a skilled player it's just not true so a question i have for you and i'm curious where you stand on this because it's a debate that we've been seeing popping up more and more and more lately particularly about Giannis. uh with the trajectory that he's on and, you know, ignoring, I know a lot of people are like, oh, if he wins an MVP and a defensive player of the year this year, it puts <laughs> him top X all time. If he wins another championship, another finals MVP, it puts him top X all time. If he continues this play for a significant stretch of seasons, where do you think Giannis Antetokounmpo finishes his career all time? Man, it's just so hard for me to say because it's like, um, who knows how long it'll last, right? Because you talk about his game being predicated on a lot of athleticism, burst, strength, but like he's got, like you said, he's gotten so skilled and talented with other aspects that it's like he can be good for a very long time. Like it's not accidental. Like uh, you can say this is physicals or whatever. In the last two seasons, Giannis has finished over 82% inside the paint. Two seasons in a row. Not even Shaq or LeBron got over 80 83.7% last year, 82.5% this year. That finishing ability is not just athleticism. He is ridiculous in the paint. And it's like, no matter how much he loses that burst strength athleticism, that's something that'll never go away. His passing never will go away. His defensive IQ and, and just 
knowledge on that end will never go away. So it's like, how long can he keep up this play? I don't really have an answer for you on where he'll rank all time uh, when his career is said and done, because for me, that's just, that's just way too difficult to answer. But what I will say is right now, this version of Giannis, I think is a top 15 player we've ever seen um, in terms of peak ability. Uh, I think he's a top 15 player ever. And depending on where his longevity and prime length stacks up, I could see him ending up there uh, by the end of his career. But just in terms of what I'm seeing right now compared to other greats and where I've evaluated them over the years, um, I do think he's in that like peak David Robinson, Kevin Durant type of level of player. And to me, that's top 15 level right there. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I would tend to agree. I think uh, longevity is the is the only thing standing between him and, you know, finishing dang near, if not top 10 all time. I mean, right, at, this exactly. point, at this point, if, if this is what Giannis is at the age of 26 or 27, whatever he is right now, if this is what he is for the rest of his career, in his prime, you know, you can argue when the prime is going to end. It's typically anywhere from 27 to 32 is when we see guys in that prime of their careers. But if he continues this, it's it's going to be hard to imagine he's not right up there with with a lot of those guys. And he's just putting up like the the the, the overall consistency is crazy because usually we see guys hit a peak level and two or three years later they'll either taper off or get better or just like um, fall off a cliff, whatever it is. Giannis hit a level in 2019 and he's just been grad, like very close to that level, but gradually increasing to an all-time level. And it's like seeing him, it's like every time he, he steps on a basketball court, he's gotten better at a certain skill. Like one skill has just gotten so much better. And it's to a point where it's like, this guy is just so crazy good. And... We don't know. He has he's shown zero signs of regressing, and he probably won't for years. None of his skills have have gotten worse. He's only gotten better every year. Nothing has gotten worse over the years. And it's like if he just stays in this uptick and then hits a level, like even say if this is his peak level, and he starts to gradually decline after the season, which I don't think will happen, but say it does, that would leave him with like one of the best seven year stretches we've ever seen, because. He just hit such a high level out of nowhere, it seemed like, in 2019. Like, he was already steadily getting good. Like, he was an all-NBA level player, like, for years before that. But it was just like, boom. This guy's, like, damn near all-time level player, and he's just going to keep getting better, better, better. Like, his defense got better. His passing got better. His off-ball game got better. It just keeps getting better and better and better. And I don't even think this is the best version of Giannis we'll see in his career. But even if it is, like I said... That's a top 15 peak ever with already stacking up this level of prime consistency. I mean, like you said, it's hard to imagine without, uh, I mean, barring some insane injury. uh, Obviously, we hope that doesn't happen, but uh, barring some insane injury or or career ending moment, he should end up in that discussion. (laughs) No, but you get what I'm saying, like. There, there's no reason to believe he doesn't end up in that echelon of players. No doubt. So uh, pivoting a little bit 
let's talk about the New York Knicks and just how absolutely terrible they have been lately. There is no way around it. They have been horrible. They've been disappointing. Uh, honestly, it's been pathetic at times. And I'm going to be honest. I've watched uh, I've watched a good amount of Knicks games this year. It's getting harder and harder to watch this team play basketball because there is very little that is fun about watching them blow these leads. Unless you're rooting for the other team, it's it's rough, man. Like I I have sometimes had to just switch games because I'm like I can't even watch this. This is awful. This is just awful basketball and they're totally going to blow this lead. So what have your thoughts been on the New York Knicks lately? I don't really have too many thoughts on the Knicks because, I mean, uh, it's just like, <laughs> well, what can you say? I mean, it's just gross. Like, it's just disgusting basketball. And what do you think? What do you think the biggest problem is for them? Okay, so we saw this quite a bit last year, especially in the playoffs. They don't have an offense. It does not exist. It's like they're playing like it almost feels like they're playing at a YMCA sometimes where it's like, uh, they're, they're like giving it to Randall and letting him just like generate whatever he wants or like Emmanuel quickly or Derek Rose, whoever it is. It's just like their offense is, is, is hot potato ISO ball at times. And they could get away with it last year because they had such a good defense, right? They, they were a top five defense. I'm pretty sure if not like sixth or seventh in the NBA. So no matter how bad their offense looked at times, they were still able to squeeze out grudge wins because they were just preventing the other team from scoring. But in the last 10 games, they've had a 116 defensive rating. With that egregious offense, and it's just bad basketball. Like, when you when you can't rely on your defense and your offense is that pathetic, um, yeah, you're not going to win basketball games. And they're 2-8 and eight in their last 10 for a reason. Julius Randle, admittedly, has finally started playing much better basketball. But it's just not enough. The Knicks just, they, they have nothing going for them. They have no offense. Their defense has fell off a cliff from the last year. And right now they're just stuck. Like, I, I don't even know where they go from here. It's just, they just don't really have anything going for them. Besides maybe some flashes that RJ Barrett has shown um, on both ends of the floor. But it's just, yeah, I don't know how you feel. But like, when, you, when your offense is just that bad, like there's zero scheme and two creators at most it's like you have to rely on your defense but then when your defense sucks uh your team sucks <laughs> that's just all it comes down to they're bad on offense and defense it's just gross <laughs> and i talked a little bit about it on twitter and by the way if you're still listening right now be sure to go follow us on twitter uh my at is at alex hoops yt uh tyler's is at kg's goat uh, so be sure the to follow plugs. us on Twitter. Respect uh, the plugs. <laughs> also, um, but I was talking about it a little bit on Twitter. Uh, Tom Thibodeau has been following this trend lately where his first season with a team, they'll exceed expectations. Like that first season he was with the Timberwolves, uh, they made it to the playoffs. And then the next season they fell apart and he ultimately was fired. Now, I think one of the bigger symptoms with uh, Tom Thibodeau during his tenure with the Timberwolves was that not only was he the coach, he was also the general manager. And I think that presents a lot of problems. Uh, We've kind of seen it um, with Greg Popovich. Obviously, Greg Popovich had some more success, and now we're kind of seeing things 
decline a little bit, even though he's not technically the general manager anymore. They have someone else making decisions over there. But I anyways, didn't even know that about Thibodeau. I never even knew that. Yeah, so he was he was the general manager for the Timberwolves uh, when he was there, I believe. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm like I'm like 99% sure about that. And it was either he was the general manager here or he was the one making the decisions of the general manager. It was something like that where he was in charge of constructing the roster and uh, obviously, that's not the case with with the Knicks right now. Uh, Leon Rose is is the one running the show for them. But um, this issue that we're seeing with with Thibs is their first his first season with these teams is they exceed expectations and they're good, and then the following season they just fall off a cliff. It happened with the Timberwolves, and now we're seeing it happen with the Knicks. And I don't necessarily think it's specifically anything he's doing. I do have problems with his propensity to not play rookies and young guys because they've got a guy like Quentin Grimes uh, who in the limited minutes he's played has looked really, really good. Like I like Quentin Grimes a lot and I think he's going to be a very good NBA player, but it's just a situation where he's not getting the opportunity to shine and he's started to get more lately, and I think it's been really, really good for them, even though they're losing games. Um, not necessarily his fault, necessarily, but he has looked really, really good. And just up to this point in the season, he hasn't gotten a ton of opportunity. They had a guy like Obi Toppin, who in the limited minutes he's been getting this year, he's looked pretty dang good. And he does a lot of good things. Obviously, he has his flaws still, and he's still got some development to do as a player. But, you know, these guys aren't getting a significant enough of an opportunity to see if they can make a good impact or not. And it's one of those things that Thibs has always been about or been bad about throughout his career is just playing young guys. He's not he doesn't like to do. I don't know if he doesn't like to do it. I don't know if he just doesn't want to do it. I don't know if he just. It's like a, a principal thing for him, but he just doesn't do it. And right. I don't know if that's directly the cause of why the Knicks are struggling. I don't think it is. I think it's maybe just one of the things that could be contributing to this big cloud of of issues that they're having. I think guys underperforming and not living up to the expectations that we kind of have come to expect. But, you know, it's just a cumulative effect of – I don't know if it's like we we always hear about championship fatigue. I I guess they have playoff fatigue this year uh, after getting bounced in the first round by by the Atlanta (laughs) Hawks. But it's uh, it's just not a good situation in New York. And I don't really know what the solution is. Obviously, Julius Randle has been better lately, but up to this point in the season, he hasn't been what you want him to be. And I know they kind of expected him to be their quote unquote franchise guy, their number one option, the leader of that team. And, I think with Julius Randle, he's a very good player. I don't know if you want him being your number one option. I mean, I definitely don't think you want him being your number one option. I also don't think you want him being the leader of your team. Some guys are able to step up and be that leader. I think there's a lot of guys that are really, really good at that. And unfortunately, Julius Randle is just not one of those guys. He's not a guy who is cut out for leadership from what we've seen. Now, obviously, I'm... I'm saying this from at home on the couch watching games. I could be totally off base and completely wrong. So I accept that. But from right. a from a spectator's perspective, it seems like that's not something Julius Randle is particularly cut out for. And I'm glad you mentioned the rotations with Thibodeau not being willing to play young guys because 
On top of that, he also runs his starters into the ground. Um, this is something we've seen for years and years and years, going back to Chicago when he would play Jimmy Butler for 48 minutes on five straight games. Or uh, he, he clearly runs his guys into the ground. And I wonder if someone did a case study that has something to do with something to do with uh, them tapering off in their second season. What if they're they're fatigued because they got ran into the ground one season before before, and now they don't have the energy to play an entire eighty two games again? So that I feel like that is a potential case study where someone could look at it and be like, yeah, he played this guy this many minutes so many times that the second season he just fell off. And I won't hold the Minnesota thing against him because obviously Jimmy Butler getting traded was huge because he was their either their first or second best player. I would say he was their best player at that point. Um, so of course they're going to fall off after that. And I actually did look, I I'm reading this off Bleacher report. The Tom Thibodeau era in Minnesota ended Sunday and with him died a trend. The hybrid head coach basketball operations chief. No one is going to hire a coach in that dual role again. So I had no idea. I never even knew that. And so, yeah, you were right. He was the one making the decisions both on and off the court. And and I guess he's the last to do it because apparently it was a disaster and no one wants to do that again. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's very interesting with Thibodeau. And I feel like some of the Knicks' problems are pretty easily explainable. Uh, like I said, their defense – falling off while they don't really have a real functioning offense. Uh, the the rotations, the unwillingness to play young guys, even if they do show great flashes. But what's a lot less explainable is the Hornets problems. I don't know what the problem there is. I, they're, they're, they're also two and eight in their last 10, just like the Knicks. And I can't spot a point of emphasis where I'm like, Oh, this is why. They're not playing very good. I don't know if you have any ideas, but what have your thoughts been on why the Hornets have struggled so much? Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what's wrong because their top guys, you know, their top guys have been playing well. Uh, LaMelo Ball has been playing fairly well. Miles Bridges playing well. Um, it's tough to just put your finger on one thing that could be wrong. And I, I don't, I honestly can't say I know exactly what it is. Um, could it be a situation where other teams are just quite simply outplaying them over the stretch? Potentially. Um, I know Gordon Hayward has been a little bit underwhelming, at least to me this year. Hornets fans may disagree and I'm sure I'll hear about it. Um, but to me, Gordon Hayward just isn't really filling that role that they needed him to. Last year, he looked fantastic. This year, uh, to, in my opinion, I don't think he's looked as good. I've seen several instances where he's just blown wide open layups uh, and just quite simply hasn't looked like the player that we've expected him to be even post uh, post injury where he, we, where he broke his foot. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily have an exact problem because like i said you can look at uh what their top guys have been doing and typically what your top guys are doing can dictate whether you're winning or losing games and it doesn't really seem like they're playing horribly yeah it's very interesting i'm looking at it now in their last 10 games where they are two and eight they have a 107 offensive rating and like a 114 defensive rating so it's not like these are close games. They're getting 
obliterated on both ends. And for me, everything kind of looks okay. And the one thing that stands out to me is over their past 10 games, they're attempting over 39 threes a game. And they're making 29.8% of them. That is not good basketball. That is not good basketball. And like you said, even if their star guys are looking the same, that's where it shows the impact of role players. Are the role players able to capitalize on their star players uh, playing well? LaMelo Ball obviously is one of the best passers, honestly, I can say I've ever seen. And if he's if he's setting up guys like this and they're not capitalizing on the opportunities, how much value is that really adding? Miles Bridges, he can score all these points, but if he's not putting up 40, if he's just putting up 20, there's still uh, 90 other points to go around. And if those are not coming efficiently, that's not going to lead to anything. And they've never been a good defense. They've pretty much been winning games this season off of their offense. They still lead the league in points per game right now. Um, but it's like when you're not hitting your shots and you don't have a good defense, I feel like it's similar to the Knicks, except the Hornets have a good offense. They've had a good offense all year. It's just like, man, whoa, you got to hit your shots. It's, it's, it seems like it's a lot of high variance in that. And it's pretty crazy. Just looking at this right now, out of all of the top 16 offenses in the NBA, The Hornets are the only one with a negative net rating. The only one. Every other team is a positive. Um, They're 11th in offensive rating right now, and they're about a negative one net. So it shows that a lot of their problems have been on the defensive end. But also, when your offense is tanking like this over a stretch and you still can't hold that defense because on the season they have like a 113 defensive rating, if your offense tanks for any type of stretch, um, you're going to lose those games because there's no way for you to make up for it. And like you said, it's very hard to pinpoint in a real issue besides like the defense. And for me, it's just a lot of high variance, like 39 threes a game below 30% is not normal. That's not normal at all for any team. Like that's just absurd variance and just very, very bad shooting luck. Like not even the Thunder are that bad from three and the Thunder are literally putting out lineups of, I mean, with all due respect, I know you're a Thunder fan, but <laughs> you see the lineups. You see the lineups, man. I've seen lineups where the best shooter is Darius Baisley, and they're shooting better than the Hornets right now. <laughs> man, yeah, no, but when, when, you, when you're playing with that much variance, when you're attempting 39 threes a game and you have a bad defense, you need to be hitting your shots or you're going to lose games. Yeah, That's I really what it all comes down to. Yeah, I, one big issue, and I know this was kind of the talk of their trade deadline. Um, man, I wish they had gotten... Jakob Pertl because Jakob oh, Pertl would do so much for their defense. It's not even funny. Jakob Pertl is one of the better defensive anchors in the entire NBA. And he is the best. perfect. He is the perfect pick and roll player. Exactly what I was going to say. Ball. 100%. That, uh, he's, he's like, he's, I, I forget, he's over 90th percentile, or he's either like 88th or 90th percentile in in uh as the pick and roll role man this year like he's been really really good and they got montrez harrell who you know technically yes he's a big man but he's not a defensive big man uh he's not going to do a whole lot to bolster your defense he can't anchor your defense he can't be he if montrez harrell is the best 
interior defender on your team, you're going to have a bad time. And <laughs> I just, I really wish they had done whatever they need. I don't know what the hangup is in the trade. I know it was probably based around PJ Washington, uh, but I really wish they would have just done whatever they needed to do to get Jakob Pertl because not only is he the perfect player to put alongside LaMelo Ball and to put in their defense, he's also on such a great contract. It's a shorter contract, but it's a cheap contract, and it gives you the flexibility to re-sign him down the road. And it just would have been a match made in heaven. It would have been perfect for them. And I'm really bummed that we don't get to see it. I'm glad Jakob Pertl, uh, you know, it's still fun to watch him and DeJounte Murray go to work in the pick and roll. But, man, I really wish the Hornets had gotten him. Yeah, he would have been huge. I've been saying this for – this is the second year in a row now where he's been on a very short list of um, the best rim protectors in basketball. And what he's able to do around the rim on both ends of the floor is just really, really good stuff. It's just really good basketball. And – He's a guy that really flies under the radar because he doesn't get a lot of nationally televised attention. He's not a big guy in the media. He's not um, a highlight machine or anything. He's just a guy who goes out and he just plays very, very good basketball. And even like looking at some numbers right now, he's shooting 52% from 10 to 16 feet on good volume. He's got some counters. He's not just someone who can only uh, run to the rim and, and score off of putbacks or anything. Like He legitimately has a quality scoring game and on top of being like you said one of the best defensive anchors in the game yeah that would have worked wonders for charlotte on both ends of the floor because he just would have been a huge threat i'm not mad at adding Montrez Harrell because they were already one of the most fun teams to watch in the league and uh and, and now now yeah now we're gonna see some more alley-oops with the hornets announcers going ballistic Montrez. but uh yeah <laughs> to going full small ball when Montrez Harrell is is your your big man. I mean, I, I they do have Mason Plumley, but I mean Mason Plumley, we know he's been he's been what he is for basically his entire career. He's good in fantasy. Yeah, he's good in fantasy for sure. I actually <laughs> had him in my lineup earlier in the season. Uh but you know, he is what he is and he's not going to be able to be a true big man that you need in your lineup at the end of games and stuff like that. And so you're kind of committing towards this small ball way of doing things when you have Montrez Harrell and Miles Bridges kind of operating as your front court. And I don't, I don't dislike it from a enjoyment as a fan perspective. Cause we get a lot of highlight plays from it, but from a like team building perspective, I don't really like it that much. Um, and he is coming Agreed. off the bench, but I understand he's also going to be playing significant minutes and probably playing a lot of minutes at center for them. And Montrose Harrell, we we know it's no secret he's not the best defender in the world. Right. Like, he's not a bad one, but he's not going to fix any of their issues. And they are one of the worst defenses in the NBA. And adding Montrose Harrell isn't going to do anything to offset that. And it's just like, yeah, it, it almost just feels like a lateral move. Like, you know, it's almost like they, they've gotten to a point where their defense is so bad that they're just going to fully try and supercharge that offense, which just isn't going to work because it's not like you have a guy like – like supercharging an offense works when you have a guy like Steve Nash who can just generate the offense like that uh, while not needing a good defense. But, like, the Hornets don't have that type of guy. LaMelo Ball is great, but he's not someone you want to slow down on a half-court offense and generate a ton of opportunities. He's not really a creator like that. He's more of a – 
um, transition creator. And then in the half court, he plays a lot of off ball in that like pick and roll passing role uh, or coming off handoffs and things like that. He's not really a, a ball dominant generator. And unless you have a guy like that, I don't see how you can just supercharge an offense. And to me, it's going to probably explode and the Hornets might not get into the playoffs now, which is just very interesting because I mean, The thing is, I mean, who could have predicted what the Celtics and Raptors have been doing, right? They've just been dropping, and and these guys are going on eight-game win streaks and stuff, and it's like, damn. Yeah, I. it'll be interesting to see where they finish out in the standings. Maybe they come back post-All-Star break and, and look a lot better, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to leave a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AlexHoopsYT, at KGsGoat. Uh, be sure to go subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Pin Down. Thank you guys so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in the next one.